You know, when I was young, my family moved from Louisiana up to the eastern part of Washington State. My dad was teaching at an academy there, and I was always a shy kid. I had friends in the neighborhood, and I loved to go out and play with my friends, but I, I really loved nothing more than to go off by myself and play alone by myself. And I remember right next to the house was this giant Douglas fir tree. It was a beautiful tree. I, that's one of the things I love the most about uh, eastern Washington. It was always so, so beautiful. And uh, they're at the campus of UCA. And uh, I would like to go out and play under that tree. And I noticed as I was playing under this tree by myself that uh, the branches are really low and really close together. Now, I was always afraid of heights. I never liked climbing anything, at least not very far. I was always like, adventurous. But if I got up very far, I'd always get scared of heights and come down. So I started climbing this tree, and uh, I climbed up, and the branches were so close together, even though I was climbing up, I didn't really hardly feel scared because, like, I couldn't fall even if I tried. So I, I climbed up, and, and I climbed back down. And the next day, I climbed up where I'd been, I climbed up a little further, and climbed back down. And I kept, kept doing that day after day. I would just climb up a little bit further, and every day I'd get a little bit more confident. I'd be scared to go that the first day. Then I'd get a little more confident. I'd start climbing up a little bit higher. And, and some people had climbed the tree before, I think, because the branches were nice and smooth. But I got up to a certain point, and, and no one, I think, had been there before because, you know, even the bigger branches, they still had the pine needles on them. So I had to kind of use my hand and brush the pine needles off, and I'd go up a little farther and up a little farther, and day after day after day, I'd keep climbing a little bit farther up this tree. And that was so much fun. And finally, I got to this place, probably about halfway up the, that tree, and I mean, I was way up there. Now, I was maybe nine years old. So, you know, everything I remember is from the perspective, maybe, of a, of a nine-year-old. It'd be fun to go back and actually see, you know, all of those places now as an adult. But anyway... I'm sure it wouldn't be quite nearly such a, a grand adventure as that. And I, or maybe I'd be too scared to climb the tree. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I got up to this place about halfway up the tree, and I the branches kind of parted a little bit. And, and instead of just being dense foliage all the way around, I could look out. And I could look out over the backyard. Past the backyard, I could look out over the wheat fields and the rolling hills going off and off and off in the distance behind the academy. And it was just beautiful. And I was just entranced. And I thought, you know, it would be so neat if I could just stay up here. And I swung my leg up over a branch, and I kind of sat there for a little while. And I, but I got tired of sitting on a branch. I mean, you know how it feels. Even even as a kid, you know, you can't sit like that forever, you know. So I thought, you know, all my friends, they're always building forts. They always manage to find nails and wood, scrap pieces of wood and stuff. Let me. See, I wonder if I could build a fort up here. So the next day... I rounded up a scrap of wood and some nails and a hammer and I scampered up the tree and got up to my little place and <laughs> by now I was going pretty quick but but I couldn't go too quick because of course I had a hammer in one hand and a board in the other hand and I was trying to climb a tree with my elbows <laughs> and so I was going up here finally I got up to the place and, and the thing I didn't think of is you know how hard it is I, I didn't quite think of how am I going to hold on to the tree and the board that I'm trying to nail, and nail with the ha hammer with the hammer with the other hand. I don't know how I managed that. It was harder than I thought it was going to be. And I banged, and I tapped, and I banged. and But I finally got a board nailed in across two branches, and they were coming out at kind of an angle like that, so I, it was a little bit slanted, but it would do. It was all right. And I had the board nailed down there, and I had my little 
tree fort all to myself. None of my friends knew about my tree fort. I don't even know if my parents knew about my tree fort. They probably wouldn't have wanted me climbing the tree with a hammer and nails. Johanna, don't do, don't do things that I tell you about, okay? Don't try this at home. <laughs> don't try climbing a tree with a hammer and nails. But anyway, I climbed up there and I had that little fort. And I, the next day I climbed up and I sat on that little board and I, I just thought this was the greatest thing in the world because I could look out and I could look at the, at the fields and I could imagine, you know, I could see the eagles soaring out over the fields. And I thought, what would it be like to fly like an eagle? Just to soar out over the fields like that. And I could just imagine taking off, if I had wings, just taking off from that tree and flying out. I didn't try it. I knew, I knew better than that. I was still afraid of heights, remember? But, you know, I thought, one day Jesus is coming again. And I wonder, I wonder how soon it will be. I wonder if he would come. Wouldn't it be neat if he would come when I was sitting up here in this tree? And I would already be up in the air. And all I would have to do is, I would just go right out of this little opening and up, up, up into the air and up to that cloud. And we would all go up together to heaven. And you know, looking back on those memories and, and thinking of that, I'm always, for one thing, I'm always so grateful for the training that I had for my loving and God-fearing parents, for bringing me up even at such a young age. I didn't understand theology and, and all of this other stuff, but I knew that Jesus is coming again. And I can still remember sitting there in that little perch, in that little tree, thinking, oh, I wish Jesus would come while I'm sitting here looking. And I think I was even looking east, if I, re- if I remember my directions correctly. But I'm sitting here and looking and waiting for him to come again. You know, I think of the first man in the Bible that's ever recorded as being translated. That is, taken straight to heaven without seeing death. Who knows his name? I heard it. Someone said it. Enoch. Enoch was the first man taken straight to heaven without seeing death. And in fact, besides Jesus himself, there was only one other man besides Enoch who was taken straight to heaven. His name was Elijah, the prophet Elijah. Others, many others have been raised from the dead and others, yes, have been taken to heaven. We know about Moses. We know about those who are raised at Christ's resurrection. But but only two, only Enoch and Elijah, were translated straight to heaven without seeing death. And that scripture reading that Margie read for us this morning, it was found in Genesis chapter 5. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. What kind of a man was Enoch? What made him so different from all of the others who lived on this earth that God would have chosen to take him to heaven in such a remarkable way? You know, really, if you take the Bible as a whole, if you look at how much is written in the Bible about the other Bible characters, there's, there's comparatively little written about Enoch. In fact, all we have are four verses here in Genesis. The immediate context, of course, gives us the setting, but the four verses tell us the life story of Enoch. His name appears again in genealogies and again in a couple small passages in the New Testament, referring back to these texts in Genesis. That's the sum total of it. That's all we have of his story. But what can we glean from the story of Enoch? 
And why would that be important to us today? Now, some of you, maybe if you've read some things that I've written online, you might be wondering, well, why is Pastor Daniel talking about Enoch? But among other things, I've said, I've pointed out this fact that I'm pointing out here, and that is the fact that there's very little scriptural um, context for the life of Enoch. And pointing out that if we use Bible examples, we should take examples for our lives from many, many Bible characters and not just use only the, the Bible character of Enoch. That is not to say that we should not use the character of Enoch as an example. Because I think of all the people who have lived in the Bible, save Jesus himself, Enoch and Elijah are particularly examples of the people, you and I, who we believe are living in the very last days. We'll get to that in a moment. That is to say, I just don't want anyone to go away thinking, if you've read some things that I've written online, thinking that I don't believe in Enoch, because that's not the case. Going back to the story here in Genesis, the first thing to note if we're going to study the life of Enoch is to, to note the immediate history and the context of Enoch's life. Now, Enoch had descended in a very short line of descent from Adam, the first man who ever lived, through his son Seth. Now, Adam had several sons. Uh, one, of course, was Abel, who, who was killed by Cain, his brother. So Abel died. He didn't have any descendants. But then we have Cain, and then we have Seth, these two men who became patriarchs, really of two separate lines within the human race. The descendants of Seth, by and large, you follow them down, remained faithful to God. The descendants of Cain, on the other hand, and the Bible traces them down, became very accomplished in metalworking and in all kinds of arts of building and all of these things, but they forgot God. They rebelled against God. And in fact, we find in Genesis 6, the, the very next chapter after our story here, how it talks about how the descendants of, of God, the descendants of Seth who had followed God, were intermarrying with those who had forsaken God. And very soon, the entire world was becoming very, very corrupt. This was the context of Enoch's life. This is the world that he was born into. A world where the patriarch, Adam, was still living, still teaching, still telling people about God. But a world where the vast majority of men were becoming more and more and more wicked by the day. Enoch was undoubtedly a prophet. Well, how do we know that? Of course, we know it from the New Testament. But right here in this very passage, he names his son with a prophecy. What was the name of Enoch's son? He begot his son, Methuselah. Now, of course, we think of Methuselah, we think of, all oh, that was the man, the longest man that ever lived. But what was the meaning behind his name? If you look up the etymological meaning of the name Methuselah, it means simply, when he dies, it comes. This is perhaps the very first, the very earliest time prophecy in the Bible. Enoch, as far as we know, was the first to have this specific prophecy of the destruction of the world by a global flood. And it was so impressed upon his heart and his mind that he named his firstborn son Methuselah. He knew from God that when Methuselah would die, when his firstborn son should die, then the deluge would come. Enoch was a prophet. During his lifetime, Adam, the father of our race, dies. And I'm sure that this, this death of Adam 
combined with the fact that his son, now over a hundred years old, was named, when he dies it comes. It was a stark reminder to the inhabitants of the world, God's judgment is coming. The end is coming. And of course, Enoch lived to raise his son and his grandson to love and to fear God. And his great-grandson would be the man by the name of Noah, who would see the literal fulfillment of the prophecy that Enoch made in naming his son Methuselah. We get another glimpse of Enoch's message in the book of Jude, in, uh, the very last, next to the last book of Revelation, of the New Testament, next to Revelation. Jude 14 and 15. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Friends, the message of Enoch was not a popular message. The message of Enoch was a message of God's coming. A message of God's coming in judgment to judge the world in righteousness. Not a judgment of everyone's going to be destroyed, but a judgment of be faithful to God. Because there will be a decision, a distinction made between the righteous and the wicked, between the faithful and the unbelieving. But what was the key to Enoch's life? What set him apart as being so different from all the others who lived before and since? Right here in the text, we find three words that describe the incredible life of this man. It says simply that Enoch walked with God. He walked with God. It doesn't say he simply talked about God. He doesn't simply hurl down anathemas against those who were, who were committing idolatry. He didn't simply pray or study, and he didn't simply preach. Primarily, he walked with God. What does it mean to walk with somebody? You know, ever since I was a child, one of my favorite Sabbath afternoon activities has always been to go on a Sabbath afternoon walk. Now, although I have always and still do enjoy being by myself, on Sabbath afternoon, I always wanted to walk with someone. You see, when you walk with someone, you can also talk with someone. You can have something in common. As you're walking together, you're going the same direction and you're building a relationship with that person. Now, I remember one particular walk that uh, I took when I was 11 years old with my family and another family had come over to, to visit. Uh, their name was Reeve. And, and we spent the, the Sabbath together and, and, uh, after, after lunch, we went out for a walk as our custom was. We would go walking and now the Reeve family had an 11 year old daughter. Now I was 11 years old and they had an 11 year old daughter by the name of Christina. And we had a wonderful visit and we kind of went off and walked kind of on our own together, and we were walking, and we argued the entire time. She she thought that there were seven colors in the rainbow, and I thought there were only six colors in the rainbow, and we, we argued. I mean, for two hours, we had this, this knockdown drag out while we were walking together. But of course, uh, in the end, we must have made up. I gave her a present, and I later on, we kind of got separated, and our lives went a different direction, but you probably know the end of the story, though. We got back together, and Christina is now my wife. <laughs> but that was the first conversation that we had that I can recall uh, of any length. We had spoken some before that, and she'd asked me, uh, when's your birthday? And so I told her. 
Apparently she never forgot that. I forgot that, but she never forgot that. <laughs> but, uh, but I remember walking together. Because as we were walking together, we were talking together. And we were actually, we weren't like falling in love with each other. Like I said, we were arguing. But we were building kind of a friendship. And that friendship that started there, years later, turned into a relationship. And it's been the, the biggest blessing of my life. But in order to walk with someone, you have to be going the same direction. Amos 3 verse 3 asks, Can two walk together unless they are agreed? In order to walk with God, Enoch had to align his life with God. To keep God's law. To resist this tide of evil that was sweeping away both the ungodly and the God-fearing into this, into this tide of evil, into this tide of destruction. Now, in order to do this, he had to, in, in some sense, separate himself off from the world. Unlike Lot, he could not pitch his tent in Sodom and hope to remain, him and his family, to remain separate, to remain pure and faithful. He, like his God-fearing ancestors, lived in rugged mountains, away from the wicked influences of the people multiplying in the world. Now, of course, he wasn't a hermit, but he realized the weakness of his human nature, and he set boundaries in his life to prevent himself and his family from compromising with sin. Enoch walked with God. He was going the same direction, but not only that, when you're going together in the same direction, it's natural to want to talk to one another. And in walking with God, Enoch was no different. John says in 1 John 5, verses 14 to 15, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have desired of him. Walking together means, yes, going in the same direction. It means talking to each other. But most importantly, I believe that walking together means building a relationship with one another. Coming to a common understanding, a spiritual bond, an emotional bond, yes, a bond of love and affection that binds our hearts together, stronger than a heart of a brother or a sister, a bond of intimacy, if you will, of heart and of purpose. Jesus says in John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. My friends, I believe that walking with God implies a relationship, an abiding relationship, one in which God infuses our lives with a power that is not our own that enables us to bear fruit that is not our own, but fruit unto God. Enoch demonstrated in his life what it means, I believe, to abide in Christ. He grew so close to God that, as it were, it was as if God said one day to him, you're closer to my home than you are to yours. Come on home with me. Now, I know there's some Christians that might wonder, what's so special about the way that Enoch went After all, don't we all go to heaven when we die? I mean, it's common. And you have to admit, even among Christians, that we use phrases like, God called him home. 
It was his time to go home. God took him. We, we use those phrases when we refer to someone's death. But you know, if you go by the scripture, if you study the Bible, we can see very distinctly that this was a different experience that Enoch had. He did not pass under the dominion of death like everyone else of us does. Moses was not using fancy words to try to say that Enoch died young. If you look the Hebrew word up, the Hebrew word that's translated there in Genesis 5, took, God took him. Look up that word. Look up every other place where that word is used. And if you have a, a computer program or a, a concordance like the Englishman's concordance, it's not hard to do. Look up every other time that hot Hebrew word was used. It's never used to refer to someone dying. Nowhere else does that, does that word appear in the context of someone dying and going to heaven. God took him. Only right here in the context of Enoch, we find that word took. The uh, 70 Jewish scholars who translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek during the time before Jesus' ministry clearly understood this fact. Uh, and I actually have on my computer, again, I have a translation, an English translation of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. It reads something like this in Genesis 5.24, And Enoch was well-pleasing to God, and he was not found, it just doesn't, doesn't end with the word not, he was not found because God translated him. The Jewish scholars clearly understood when they translated this verse that it wasn't talking about Enoch's death, that it was talking about his translation, his going to heaven in a way that no one else had. And honestly, this is a, a seldom used, but I, I believe a very powerful argument in favor of our understanding of the state of the dead. Why else would there be such a distinction made between taking the taking of Enoch and the passing or the death of every other Bible character, if, if indeed they had all gone the same way? Why else would there be such a distinction? And the writer of Hebrews makes this absolutely clear in Hebrews 11, verse 5. Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. This is the New King James Version. Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. there You cannot get more clear than that. But let's move on. I want us to get to this point that I kind of started with in this story. The eschatological parallels. In other words, the parallel between the life of Enoch and the end times. And if you study your Bible, you cannot help but see this distinct parallel. No one before Enoch had been translated to heaven. And like I said, only one person since, that was the prophet Elijah, besides Jesus himself. Yet in 1 Corinthians, we read about a group of people, a group of Christians living in the last days who will be translated to heaven without seeing death. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 53. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 53. You probably know this passage by heart. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Sleep is another word for death. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be 
change. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. My friends, this is an event that is unprecedented in the world's history. The translation not just of one, but of a multitude of people who believe on the name of the Lord Jesus. To be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Hallelujah. Jesus promised in John 14, 1 through 3, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. My friends, is Jesus coming again? Is Jesus coming again? Amen. My friends, Jesus is coming again. Do you believe the promise? And are you ready to go with him? Do you suppose that Enoch's experience is a foreshadowing of the experience of the faithful who will be translated in the last days? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. Verse 1 and then in verse 4. Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on the Mount Zion. Who is the lamb who stands on the Mount Zion? The lamb is Jesus. The lamb standing on the Mount Zion and with him in 144,000 having his father's name written in their foreheads. And in verse 4, these are the ones who are not defiled with women for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Do you find in your mind any similarity between the, the, the thought of following the lamb and the thought we find in Genesis of Enoch walking with God. I can't help but see a parallel. Following the Lamb and walking with God. And in verse 12 of the same chapter we read, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Two aspects. Keeping the commandments aligning our lives with the revealed will of God and having the faith of Jesus. Yes, my friends, Enoch's experience is a prime example of the last days. So what was Enoch's experience? How did he get this special experience? Did he work harder? Did he pray longer? Did he fast stronger than anyone else had ever done before? Did he, did he somehow pick himself up by his own bootstraps like no other human being had done before and managed to burst through the gates of heaven? Like me climbing that tree, if I had kept climbing and kept climbing and kept climbing, do you think maybe someday I might have climbed all the way to heaven? I think I would have run out of tree branches first. What do you think? Many have pointed out in the scriptures, that there's not actually a record in the scriptures that Enoch committed a sin. It's not necessary, friend, because there's many, many people in the Bible who are all we have is their name. And as I said that Enoch, the entire story is found in four verses. We don't have a lot of concrete information. A lot of what we know we have to infer from the context. But we do know this, that the Bible says all have sinned. And Enoch was a son of Adam. He descended from Adam and he descended with that same curse upon him that 
has fallen on every other human being. Enoch was a man just like you and I. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Friends, we don't have to wonder how Enoch made it there because Paul actually gives us the answer in the book of Hebrews. Turn with me there to Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5. By faith, listen to that, those first two words are key. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. By faith, Enoch was taken away. Before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Enoch's life was well-pleasing to God. It says he pleased God. How did Enoch please God? Did he please God by being a better person than anyone ever who had gone before? Well, the very next verse gives us the key. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You see, Enoch could not manufacture this kind of experience on his own. He could not of himself, no matter how good he could be, he could not manufacture a righteousness that would be pleasing to God. In one of the earliest books of the Bible, uh, the book of Job, Job's friends ask the rhetorical question, can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? Later on, the question is asked, how can a man be just? How can a man be justified before God? And Paul declares in Romans 3, verses 10 and 11, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. My friends, there is only one person in this world who has ever been totally pleasing to God. That person was none other than the man, Jesus Christ. At his baptism, God declared to Jesus, of Jesus, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus said himself, the Father has not left me alone, for I do always those things which please him. You see, Enoch's experience was an experience of righteousness, an experience of walking with God, an experience of pleasing God. But the ultimate aspect of his pleasing, of his being pleasing to God was not in and of himself, but it was by claiming the merits of Jesus Christ, looking into the future, to the future Messiah who should come who would redeem the world. And by faith, claiming the merits of his life for himself. You see, Enoch's experience was the same experience as that of Abraham, just a few verses later. It says that Abraham believed God and was counted to him for righteousness. Enoch's experience was the experience of righteousness by faith. Enoch had no more goodness in and of himself than any other descendant of Adam, but by faith he grasped hold of the righteousness of Christ, looking forward to Jesus, and he was accepted to God. He was well-pleasing to God. Paul wrote of his longing in Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9, to be found in him, that is, to be found in Christ, 
not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. A righteousness outside ourselves, something we can't manufacture ourselves, something better than anything we can do ourselves. That is what Jesus gave to us by his death on the cross. That was the experience of Enoch. And my friends, if you and I believe that we are living in the last hours of earth's history, if we're looking forward to the soon coming of Jesus in the clouds of heaven, what kind of righteousness do you suppose we must have to stand before him and say, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. Do we stand before him in our own righteousness? Or do we stand before him thanking God and praising God and claiming the merits of the one who died for me? First John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Now, we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. My friends, the experience of Enoch can be the experience of each and every one of us here today. Looking forward to the soon coming of Christ, how must we live our lives? Although we have been redeemed by Christ's blood, does that mean we can, we can turn our backs and go on and live our lives however we please? No. But because of what he has done for us, he is enabling us, he is cleansing and covering our lives by his grace and enabling us to walk as Enoch walked, hand in hand, heart to heart with God, day by day, purifying our lives. There's a lot more we could talk about on this topic. There's so much more. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of discussion uh, within the Adventist church on this topic of living like Enoch, of living in the last days. How are we to live? And what ramifications does this have to live? I don't have time to go into all this now. But I want to just finish up by going back to the story that I started with. You know, ever since I was a child, climbing up into that little play fort in the fir tree in the backyard, I've looked forward to Jesus coming. But sadly, I have to say that my faith has not always been as strong as it was when I was 9 or 10 years old. There have been many years when I dreaded his coming. There's been many times when my heart has quaked in fear and a dreadful foreboding that I just wasn't good enough. I couldn't possibly be ready. And then there have been, sadly, a lot of times when I secretly hoped he wouldn't come, or at least not now. There was more I wanted to do. There was more I wanted to experience. There's something I wanted to finish here before, before he would, before I would focus on that. Oh, it was just a waste of time. And there have been many times when I've spent all my thought, all my energy, all my time for the here and now. Almost to the exclusion of every thought of the hereafter. And I stand here today with you, praying, Lord, let me walk with you. 
And from time to time I still go outside when it's quiet and I'm alone. And I look up into the sky like I did so many years ago. I say, Jesus, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let me walk with you. Help me to be ready. I don't feel like I'm ready. But cover my life with your grace. And let me walk day by day with you. I want to please you like Enoch did. I want to walk with you like Enoch did more than anything else. Because really that's what it's all about. I want to put my hand in yours. And let's walk hand in hand until you lead me home. Loving Father in heaven, Lord, let me walk with you. Let us walk with you like Enoch walked. Lord, we've spent so many years wasting our lives, walking in other directions, following other leaders, and just saying the Lord delays his coming. But Lord, we know that you're coming soon. As Enoch was given that special message, that message of judgment and a message of salvation, you've given the same to us. Help us, Lord, to take that to heart, to walk with you day by day, to know that you're coming soon and to be ready to meet you when you come in the clouds of heaven. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.